Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study and Happy New Year, folks. This is our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Aaron. And I'm Damian. Thank you so much for joining us, and we are thrilled to be back. Yes, absolutely. All right, so for those of us, those new to our podcast, um, it's been a little while, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Yeah, each week we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. And we want Interdependent Study to be a space where we are always learning with one another. Damien, you're up this week for our first episode of 2022. Hey. Um, so what do you bring to the table today? Absolutely. I'm so excited to be bringing our first piece of media to the table this year. Uh, the book I've brought to the table is called Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions, and it is by Astra Taylor. Mm -hmm. And so for folks who may not know or, or have heard of her, Astra Taylor is a documentary filmmaker and writer author and uh, organizer. She's written lots of articles for various media outlets and, and also has written some award-winning books. Uh, two of them I'm going to name for you, The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age, and the book uh, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Mm -hmm. um, and her most recent documentary film is called What is, Doc what is Democracy, which actually sounds like it's a really great film, so I definitely want to check that out. Um, but she may be best known, at least this is how I had heard of her, as the co-founder of the Debt Collective, which I'm sure we'll talk about that great organization uh, and their work at some point today. But um, so this book that we read, Remake the World, is really a collection of, of essays on like a wide range of social issues and, and challenges. Right. Like there was that, there was just so much packed into this book. Right. Mm -hmm. Um she really sort of talked about politics, democracy, uh, technology and automation, social conditions in our society, um, economic justice, environmental justice, the the rise of socialism, like just just so much in this great book uh, that she um, really spends a lot of time on each of these topics, right, and sort of um, talks about our collective humanity in this country and even around the world. And so I think what's really great about this book is that she invited us as the reader to think about these issues mm -hmm. and, and how we can make positive change in our society. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's, I think there's so much that we can talk about from this book. You, where do you want to start? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, this is a really great collection of essays. Yeah. Um, and exactly like you said, I think it's really, um, interesting to think about it like you put it as like a way that we were invited to think about these different systems mm -hmm. and concerns um, about the sort of outcomes of the systems um, it seems like uh, based on reading this um, Astra Taylor has a really great insight into how systems in the US US kind of operate yeah and some really interesting ideas I think on how we can change those systems or create new systems that would be less exploitative right right um and this is such a wide range of topics um included in the book uh which was really great to read through and consider how all these things are interconnected yes um in particular right like how is debt uh as an example connected to the climate um i don't that thread i think is there for us as readers to to connect absolutely um and and it's it's fairly clear um as you read through it. So um, 
but yeah, I could sense some real themes around neoliberal capitalism um, mm-hmm. that focuses on the individual and reducing how much economic regulation governments participate in, yep. which is uh, one of the linking systems between debt uh, and its rise uh, in the U.S. Yep. and the climate crisis. Um, but you could sense that kind of analysis of structure in each of the essays in the book. Yeah, absolutely. If you if folks were struggling to make that connection, you just helped them make it right yeah, there. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah, there she, yeah, so I think in some ways she does a really great job in helping make those connections in a lot mm-hmm. of ways and in some places, you know, you can do some of that work on your own to help make those connections, which yeah. I think is really great. Cuz it is a collection of essays that were written at different times, right? Like so it's good not point. um it feels cohesive because she has a very strong voice and analysis. Yes. But these are essays that were published in other places first um, and not necessarily connected through narrative. Right? That's a good point yeah. to make. I should have made that point earlier. Very good. So, um, yeah. So there are these great essays throughout the book. And I, I, I think one of the things I enjoyed most about it was the way in which she told the story. And I think in lots of places really painted a picture about society and our conditions and and what folks experience in their everyday lives. And yeah. I think the first essay in the book is a great example of this. It's called Breathing Together. And she talked about how much we rely on our lungs to breathe and what it means when we lose our breath or, or our ability to breathe. And she used what we experienced in 2020 to illustrate this metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. So from the impact of catching COVID-19 and what that does to a person's lungs to the folks who ingested tear gas into their lungs as they protested police violence throughout the year and especially in the summer of 2020 um, to the damage done to the lungs of the folks who live near, anywhere near the thousands of fires that raged across our country that year. Um, I think it was just a really powerful metaphor to illustrate the damage of all of these things and and so much more from 2020 on us as individuals, but also on us collectively, right? Yeah. And so the rest of that chapter then was also really compelling to me because she took that metaphor and connected it to what the right wing did in response to all of those things, right? To the pandemic, to yeah. sort of the climate change. Um, and this idea, she talked about this idea of what conservatives and Trump at the time and and others in our government um, and in positions of power, how they both created and played into conspiracy theories mm-hmm. uh, on all of those things and how damaging those conspiracy theories have been. And, I, and it made me think of our conversation about, you know, disinformation and conspiracy theories yep. uh, last year, I guess I should say. Um, and so there was something that she said towards the end of that first essay, which was really powerful. And I think sort of summed up for me beautifully why this is important and and why we do this work, right? She said, I'm quoting her here, we are all living amid the wreckage of a long, ongoing and intentional sabotage of progressive collective action, a profit-driven healthcare system ill-prepared to cope with the pandemic, runaway climate change threatening the future, a bigoted and broken criminal justice system, a misinformation addled and conspiracy promoting corporate media sphere and an economy in which the majority of people can barely keep their heads above water. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it, right? Yeah. I think, um, the book opened up real strong with this, yeah. with this, uh, essay, uh, and the, this chapter, I think, um, there's so much in it to, to make these connections between, 
um, the different um, things we experienced in 2020 yep. um, and are you know, continuing to experience today, right? Yeah. Like, um, yeah. And so I think one of the pieces that I uh, also highlighted in the book that's connected to this point she makes about the sabotage of collective action, of progressive yeah. collective action, is huge, this is a quote, huge numbers of people in the United States report having no close friends. Mm. Even fewer have comrades. Um, so I highlighted this and um, wrote a note because, you know, if you don't have any close friends um, or if you don't have any comrades, to whom are you accountable? Right. For cool. your actions, right? Like who's calling you out mm-hmm. when you um, maybe step outside of your uh, values? Yeah. Um, or who's like sort of before they even call you out, like reminding you of your values yes. just by being a presence in, in, in your life. Um, you know, our relationships to others are the things that keep us grounded and accountable to one another in so many ways. And I think, um, you know, they give us space to understand that our accountability also goes beyond the people that we know and the relationships that we have. Yes. um, Right. To the people around us who we don't know, right. Strangers who we may never meet and all that stuff. Um, There's so many people who are possibly influenced by or impacted by our decision-making that we have to like consider and think about, um, you know, what is my impact here? Um, And I think that we, through so many different systems that I think she talks about here, we we have been sort of pushed away from having to think about that in in so many ways um, of like, what's, what's my impact on other people versus like, Oh, I have a right to do blah, blah, blah. Um, And I think that that sort of, um yeah that's one of the ways that as she says um the progressive collective action has been sabotaged yeah. is, is through the sort of focus on on the individual on the individual that's a beautiful point and i think again it connects what i think about when you when you mentioned that quote is the idea of the pandemic really sort of highlighted that in so many ways right mm-hmm. it both you know because we had to isolate right and so that did some damage to folks right and their ability to sort of cultivate relationships and people felt isolated right and that did some some damage to us socially right but then it also sort of exacerbated this idea of um, what does it mean for us to be in something together, right? And to think beyond the individual and what are the actions I need to take to keep myself and everyone around me safe, right? There's And there's so much there. And then you talk about this idea of these folks, if you have these folks in your life that can hold you accountable to your values, that's beautiful too, right? Yep. Um, yeah. And as we think about the work that we're trying to do here, right? And, and the importance of social justice and collective liberation to us, like having those close relationships and having those comrades is paramount. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's awesome. I love that. I, I think one of the other things that stood out to me, and I think it probably stood out to you too, given some of the conversations we've had, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she, she talked a lot in this book about money and debt, yep. as you mentioned, and, and economic justice, um, which all of that was just so compelling to me for so many reasons. You know, I think chief among them being how relevant the conversation around debt and particularly student loan debt is these days, right? And how much it's in the news and how much we're all thinking about that. Um, but in this book, she talked about all kinds of debts, right? And and all kinds of and types of circumstances and conditions that lead people and communities into debt. Yep. And, and it made me think about how 
economic justice is a true cornerstone of social justice, right? And, and collective liberation, right? Um, it's not something I've, I've always thought about, but the ways in which she talked about it in various essays in this book, like made it crystal clear. Yeah. Um, and so some of the stories that she shared, and you know, we certainly know some of these, right, from the news, right, were about the medical bills and prescriptions that folks can't afford um, and home foreclosures, right? Or communities that experience sort of budget deficits so severe that they can't support the people who live in those places. Mm -hmm. um, or what, like folks who don't have stable employment, right? Or, or aren't making a livable wage. And so in so many places in the book, she really highlighted the damage that this debt and these conditions have done and are doing, right? And also, I think I'm stealing her words here, how debt is a means of social control yes. in a way, right? Yep. And so one of the quotes that I highlighted from one of the chapters was, we need profound economic transformation that addresses underlying causes and conditions that often lead folks to debt. And that to me is just so great. And I, and I just mm. think there's so much good that could come from this idea of, economic transformation in our society, right? Mm. Like what it would mean for the racial wealth gap that exists in this country alone would be astounding. Um, and I think it's certainly why we need organizations and, and unions, I really think it's how they refer to themselves, like the yeah. Debt Collective, right? Which uh, as I mentioned, Astra Taylor is the co-founder of and why, you know, the Debt Collective is doing the work that it's doing. Yep. Right. Yeah. So actually, we should probably share a little bit about the Debt Collective. You want to do that? Yeah. Um, so the, the Debt Collective is an organization um, that decided to start unionizing debtors, um, essentially to create opportunities for collective action against creditors. Yep. Um, and this was established uh, in the wake of Occupy Wall Street mm -hmm. um, by folks who had either participated in Occupy um, or been inspired uh, by it. Um, and one of the first major things that they did was a medical debt jubilee yeah. um, called the Rolling Jubilee. Um, and it was a, a telethon live stream thing um, where their goal was to raise money to buy debt and then forgive that debt, um, which also demonstrated the injustice. Um, I'm quoting here, the injustice of a system that drives millions of sick people and their families into bankruptcy and in which misfortune can be bought and sold. Mm. Um and so you can buy this debt for pennies on the dollar, yep. right? And John Oliver has done it before on his show. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are lots of sort of illustrative examples of how this has happened. Yep. Um, but their goal was to raise $50,000 to abolish a million dollars of debt, right? Pennies on the dollar. Yep, literally, yeah. Um, but they ended up raising $600,000, um, which led to folks volunteering to be full-time debt abolishers. And they met with legal ex experts and accountants um, so they could use that money to abolish as much as possible right. um, and navigate a system that they describe as you know hostile to yes. what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, and so that that's kind of how they got started. Yeah. Um, Amazing. You know, uh, they also have a book out called um, can't pay, won't pay. Um, mm -hmm. that is about student debt and a lot of other kinds of debt. Um, right. and so I, I read that a couple years ago and recommend that as well. Um, as something just to like read and sort of re, um, it made me rethink like what the purpose of debt is. And it really yeah. talks about social control, <clears throat> um, as one of the purposes of debt. Yeah. They're also doing a lot of work now, right? Yes. They're continuing to do a lot of work now around student debt, um, abolition, um, which, 
the president of the United States um, has the authority to do under the Higher Education Act of 1965, mm -hmm. um, which is how that the authorization of that bill is how um, essentially student debt payments have been paused for right. so long now. Yeah. Like it's going to be over two years um, by the time that they allegedly restart in May. Um, and so this kind of, you know, debt cancellation broadly would close a large portion of the racial wealth gap, yes. which they talk about a lot yes. and do a lot to help the economy. Um, and they talk a lot about um, the, the, the individual stories of people of how they have, they took out, you know, um, let's say $30,000 for something right? Um, for, for their degree, maybe degrees um, and um, have been paying it for, however long they've yes. paid $34,000 or yeah. something and their balance is now, you know, 33,000. Right. Um, it's and I shameful, right. I just did some, some quick math on my own, um, roughly. Um, so I had less than $20,000 borrowed, um, after my bachelor's and master's degree. Um, and so that's 10 years. I'm more than 10 years out now. Yep. Um, so I've been paying, monthly for 10 years um that first couple years my my salary was pretty low so based on my income it was a low but based on some quick math i have paid well over like thousands of dollars over that original amount of like 18 or 19,000 i forget yep. how much it was yep. um and so i'm like well what I'm, yeah I'm, I'm done you know i paid my thing yeah. but because the um interest rate is like six percent or something mm -hmm. um you know i still have seventy five hundred dollars to go or something wow. right um now you know i've been working in public education for 10 years now so i might qualify for this program that will forgive it um and the, the rest of that um but even if i do like i've paid back the money that i initially borrowed plus some and so, then some um and that's that's a common story yes um and you're fortunate right. and enough mine, to be working in. Yeah. And mine right. is like even less drastic. Like yeah. there's some you know, people share on their Twitter, um, on the Debt Collective's Twitter um, all the time, like stories of like, yeah, I took out this much. I paid this much. And now I owe more than both of those numbers combined, yeah. um, which is just, you know, insane to think yes. about. Um, and one of the points she makes in the book um, is why should ordinary people honor their debts when the rich walk away from theirs without remorse? Oof. If corporations are people, why would they be more entitled to debt cancellation? Yes. And so I think that that is a, that's a huge point um, that, you know, we don't have as individual people, we don't have the access that corporations do to be able to sort of cancel or shift or, or make debt go away in the same, in the same manner that they do. Absolutely. Well, and I think it's why, you know, this conversation around uh, student loan debt, in particular abolition, uh, abolishment, and uh, but just this idea of, of, of debt in general is so huge now, right? When we, particularly in the context of the pandemic, when we've seen, you know, what these corporations have been able to get away with and do, and, you know, folks like Bernie Sanders have really highlighted uh, um, sort of the injustices around what corporations and corporate greed and you know the rich the wealthy this uber wealthy right have mm -hmm. been able to sort of get away with but uh everyday folks are really in are are drowning yeah. in debt 
Yeah. I mean, the PPP loans, um, which I forget what that stood for, but, you know, uh, businesses could take out loans um, to cover costs of stuff. Uh, And 80, uh, some huge percentage of that was canceled. Yeah. Those loans. Yeah. And so, and that was for businesses. So, like, there's, there is already this, like, sort of cancellation of debt happening that were originally considered loans. Um, and it costs a lot of money to maintain the systems yes. to like continue to administer this debt as well. So that's something else to keep in mind is that like it's not um, cancellation of this debt isn't like a loss of that money full stop. Right. right. Like that money's already actually been expended. Um, and I don't know that the the collection of said money back to the federal government is covering the cost of expense of the administration of it. Because there's huge corporations that are. Right. Paying salaries that to the people who yeah. are doing that. Um, and we're paying those people. Right. Like we're paying the company to administer blah, blah, blah. Like so it's all right. It's all an expense. It all is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it this conversation sort of makes me think about, you know, particularly student loan debt makes me think about her essay uh, called The End of the University. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's all connected there. It's also it resonated with me probably because I work in higher education. We both do. Yep. Um, but. You know, beyond that, I think she shared some incredible insights about a number of things that are plaguing higher education, right? From the value of higher education itself to funding for higher ed institutions, um, the disparities and inequities and, and racism that exist at universities, um, the debt, as I mentioned, right, that college students leave with after graduation, um, really these glaring pay inequities among university faculty and staff and and just so, so much more, right? I think it was a fascinating essay and one that uh, for the folks who are listening that work in education like we do, we all need to read this essay mm-hmm. um, because I also think like with so much of this book, what I appreciated most is not only did she talk about these different facets of these issues uh, with higher education, but she offered solutions or yeah. or at least challenges to us to address them, right? And so, you know, I think about the fact that she charged us to change how higher ed institutions are funded and governed to help address some real deep-seated racist, white supremacist, and, and capitalist practices that are at the core of how almost all of our institutions are run. Yeah. Um, you know, she also challenged us to actually pursue the idea of free public education to help alleviate the burden on college students and their families taking out these massive loans. Um, and again, I think about this idea that it would help address and uh, the, the racial wealth gap, you know, that often puts black students and, and students of color at an immediate disadvantage entering college, right? And certainly afterwards as well. I mean, she spends a lot of time talking sort of about the um, the income of white students versus versus black students um, after they get their college degree as well. And so, you know, that's just two of the many examples and, and um, challenges and, and insights that she shared in that essay. So I definitely want to spend some more time with it. Did you, what did you think of that one? Yeah. I mean, of course this chapter got my attention as well. Yeah. I saw it on the table of contents before I started reading. <laughs> I was like, well, well, yeah. what's that going to be about? <laughs> um, but I think one of the things I really appreciated, um, which uh, if you've listened to the podcast before, you've heard me say some version of this before, um, but the walk through history yes. of, of how defunding the university 
um, came about and how that started based on policies as a reaction to student activism in the 60s, right. um, which I believe we've talked about here before, yeah. um, particularly Ronald Reagan in Reagan. California, yep. um, which she names in the, in the chapter. Um, before that, you know, tuition was not a thing um, at public institutions in California, and that was common across the United States um, for, for public institutions. Um, and those decisions have now had obviously long-term impacts on tuition um, and how much money we all owe to our educations, um, and then how much those decisions have impacted institutions in the pandemic, right? Yeah. And I really appreciated this quote at the end of the chapter that said, we need systems designed to both acknowledge our unequal past and actively repair and redress ongoing harms. Only if we do that can the university live up to its name, embodying the Latin universitas, which means the whole or the world, a space for everyone where no subject is off limits. Mm. And that's really, you know, I think, where we probably need to try to get back to yes. and also expand from. Um, and that's why I think you see pushing for not just debt cancellation, but they're pushing for free college for all. Yes. Um, alongside that, because, you know, canceling debt solves a lot. It addresses a lot of concerns, Absolutely. but it also would um, just, if nothing else changes, it would just become a problem again in, in a few years. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, people are seeing the sort of what's the short term tactic and alongside a longer term strategy and, and trying to do both of those things and organize for both of those things. Um, and I think that that free college for all would include things beyond a four year college degree to, you know, community college, uh, trade schools, yeah, um, but a real investment in people to find their professions or find, yes. um, you know, something that will train them to have um, to be able to. Um, make a make a living for themselves uh, without being burdened by um, a huge bill at the end of it. Absolutely, make a living that they enjoy to then you know have families and yeah. and sort of live a life that folks deserve, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I love that she sort of um, took us to school <laughs> in that chapter, right? And provided that yeah. history. Um, you know, she had the Latin in there too. You, you brought up. You know, that you said something that made me think about. Um, a former episode of ours, right? You talked about ongoing harms. And I, the other thing that stood out to me, I'm sort of just recalling this from memory was, you know, she also in that chapter referenced the Combahee River Collective statement, yep. right? And I was like, oh, we read that, mm -hmm. uh, right? But she talked about sort of the ongoing harms and ongoing trauma that happened at institutions, right? And this idea that the Combahee River statement, collective statement said around, you know, we need to make sure that black women are free and then everyone can be free. Right. And that even applies in this scenario too, at colleges and universities as well. Right. Um, because if we can get black women free, then it all happens from there. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that this, the, the connection that she had in this chapter and, and others as well to, to history and pulling from other sources of really phenomenal work is something else that I enjoyed as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. One of the other things that I found really pro provocative in the book um, was this idea about lowering the voting age. Oh, yeah. What was that? Like out with the old chapter? Yeah. yeah. Um, which um, she brings up in the chapter that was about, it was called Out with the Old, and it was about gerontocracy, which, yep. meaning, which means being governed by old people. Um, and my initial reaction to it, I think, was, you know, what? Lowering mm -hmm. the vote? So um, I 
had to sort of check myself and think about it um, a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, but she breaks down pretty clearly, you know, that including more young people means that young people get a larger say in the policies that will impact them for longer periods of time. Yes. Right? Like, um, just using me as an example, a 16-year-old voting for something today, they're more likely going to experience whatever that policy is for more for like a longer period of time than Absolutely. me. Um, and she uses a couple of pretty illustrative examples um, that I recall, the first being Brexit, ah. um, right, which was overwhelmingly opposed by younger people. Um, and they're going to be the ones who have to live with that decision and the ramifications of it for years. Yep. Um, and then the other one was um, less less drastic, but also maybe more illustrative of like the way that the system works. Um is when Senator Dianne Feinstein from California was dismissive of a member of the Sunrise Movement um, because that person was 16 and therefore could not have voted for Feinstein. Right. And so, um, you know, to really drive the point home, our system was allegedly designed based on the premise that those affected by a decision should have a say in making it. Yes. Right. Which these young people do not have. This person was 16. Right. And, you know, trying to advocate for policies and Feinstein dismissed them because they didn't they're not a voter yeah um so we really need to consider expanding the franchise to include younger people because you know all the things that are happening right now are going to impact them longer particularly when when we think about climate ah, um great great point too so yeah i think um i really appreciated that chapter and sort of shifting some of my perspectives and adding some more thought to something that i hadn't um I hadn't unpacked a whole lot myself. Yeah, that that sort of um, example of the of Feinstein dismissing that young that young person really infuriated me, right? Because yeah. I mean, certainly our elected officials are supposed to represent us, right? Mm -hmm. And all of us, right? And so yeah. if this sixteen-year-old has this, you know, is able to be in this space and articulate this point, um, which I'm sure they did, you know, wonderfully, right? And 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 make a good point. They deserve to be represented and heard. Um, and so to be, to just outright dismiss them because they're not a voter is is just absurd. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so it was. A, I I I agree. A provocative chapter to really think about. You know. What would it mean for us um, to lower the voting age? And there are other examples there. And there are examples, right, uh, of that happening right now, right? Uh, yeah. Somewhere and, near to us. Uh, yeah, different cities around us. I think mm -hmm. uh, she mentions Tacoma Park, right. um, which was one of the first places, I think, in the country. Yep. So city elections there, um, I think you can be 16 and vote. Um, and there's a couple other cities around here that have done the same. That's so, incredible. Um, yeah. And, you know, that doesn't let them vote federally, but right. it lets them vote in the city elections for city council or, mm -hmm. or uh, the mayor, or, you know, whatever their structure is in those different cities. And what does it mean for them to be, you know, civically engaged, right? Yeah. From that age. I think that's beautiful. Right. Well, and that was one of the other points to that, you know, to make is like voting is sort of, um, I think that was in here. I think uh, my, so. It's like a going. sort of like a gateway yes. um, into other kinds of participation in, um, like a broader society. Absolutely. Um, and so if we sort of, if that's how we get people involved in things, um, getting them involved younger is going to make it seem like a, a thing, just it's something you do. Yeah. Like it's ingrained in you and you, you do, do it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, let's shift if it's okay with you mm -hmm. to application. Yeah. You know, I, um, 
I, as I sit here and sort of reflect on what we read in this book, I can't help but come back to my earlier point that there's just so much in this book, right? Yeah. I, and I actually think that's wonderful. And I think the application here is that there are ideas and issues and challenges presented in these essays that are connected to each other. And you made that point as well. Mm-hmm. And and undoubtedly, I think everything that she presented throughout the book has a connection to social justice and collective liberation. And so I think the beauty of a book like this and these essays and the application here is that you can sort of, uh, how do I say, like get in where you fit in, right? Yeah. You know, and, and by that, I mean, she, you know, she presented the issues, she painted the pictures, you know, she told the histories that you talked about and the stories. She articulated the the how and the why of these issues and their impact on real people and on our society. And I think everyone can find something that they're passionate about here, yeah. right? Everyone can find value in her insights, which I think are just profound, and, and her suggestions and her challenges to us to make this a better and more just society mm-hmm. um, and to be better human beings as part of doing this work and alongside doing this work. So I think that's the application of this book for me. Yeah, I think that to go along with that too, thinking about all the issues and their impact on real people, as you said, um, is that you don't have to, um, It she, she never presented it as either or. Right. Right. Like um, it was always yes and, right? Like we we can care about these things and also recognize that this matters. Yes. And maybe our focus right now is here and that's where we're putting our energy. Um, but these things we, we're, we also care about because we recognize that they are connected. Yes. Um, and that was the sort of the, the, um, feeling I got from that, from the, from the book. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think that. another big takeaway for me is the chapter about organizing and how important it is that we participate in and create spaces for people to connect with one another yeah. towards some kind of political goal. Right. Um, and this is both about leaving behind a blueprint and strategy for people to follow in the future, which I'm paraphrasing here. Um, but it's also about skill building and, and cooperative leadership development rather than the kind of like charismatic leadership development. Yeah. Um, or not development even, but like the charismatic leadership that we seem to idolize here yes. in the U.S. Um, and I think, you know, one of the other pieces, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is we have to find ways to sort of shift our thinking, our collective thinking from individualism, um, which is already, I'm already hearing um, some, some conflict in how I'm phrasing this, but mm. um, like collectively we are all sort of focused on individualism, right? Yeah. And that has to shift. Yes. Um, and we've talked about it here before, but we have to have and develop close friendships outside of our family, right? Yes. Um, and we have to be connected into organizations or neighborhood groups or right. unions or, or something that create mutually responsible relationships where we feel accountable for our actions with other people. Um, and I think that, you know, those things, I think, help us see the yes and yep. that these things are interconnected. They help us see that, like, you know, what that person's doing there matters and is, is helping me um, whether or not. I can see that, right? right? Like there's this sort of a mutuality and I think that we have to figure that out. And it also makes me think of um, 
Thich Han, who just died, mm. and sort of the interbeing um, that is a concept of Buddhism of yeah. like, you know, I um, I exist because you exist in some ways, and so we we are interconnected even if we don't necessarily um, feel that way, right? And so I, I mentioned that uh, uh, earlier about. Um, that my decisions impact people I don't know and will never meet. Um, and so I have like, we have to at least sort of expand our consciousness a little bit to try to get to that space where we're like, Oh, this does impact people beyond, um, you know, the people that I live and spend my time with mostly. Absolutely. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Spot on. Yeah. This idea of connection is so important. Um, I love that. Very good. All right. Well, let's shift Mm -hmm. and talk about homework. What do we want to do when we leave the table today? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I, I think I said this earlier, but this is the first book of hers. I know it's a collection of essays, right? From various places, but this is the, her first book that I've read. And I think reading it only makes me want to consume more of what Mm -hmm. she's done. So I, I definitely want to check out her documentary that I mentioned earlier. What is democracy? I think it came out back in 2018. If, uh, I hope I got that right. Um, I also want to read the two books that I mentioned earlier. So the people's platform and then democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. I, I don't know. I think, I just think she's got a really unique perspective and insight. Um, and so it would be awesome to continue to learn from her and with her, um, and to think about how all of this applies to the work that we're doing. Um, so yeah, that's my homework to just consume more of her work. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great homework. Um, agree with that. Um, (laughs) yeah. One of the things that I think is important in this book that we didn't get a chance to talk about too much, um, is the chapter about the climate crisis, um, which is the last chapter. Um, and in, in that chapter, she mentions the uninhabitable earth by David Wallace Wells. Um, and I've been wanting to read that for a while now. So I'm going to add that to my to read list for this year for my homework. Okay. That's, That's, um, that's that's what I'm gonna do. But he really goes into what will happen if we do nothing mm-hmm. about the climate crisis. So, um, you know, he says it's not just about rising sea levels, but also about food shortages, yeah. uh, refugee crises, climate wars, and economic devastation. Um, so, you know, the the common argument that we can't afford to do anything about it um, is, is like super short sighted. Absolutely. Um, I think this from what I've read, the book is a call to action for us to respond to these impending realities, um, to make some crucial and radical changes, um, to how we interact with our environment. Yeah. Um, and then sort of shifting back, one of the things that stuck out to me from remake the world is this quote from the last chapter about the climate crisis. Um, the industrial revolution set into motion, a chain of events that would begin to reverse protracted natural processes at breakneck speed. Within a few centuries, we are returning to the atmosphere and oceans, the concentrated organic carbon stored in sedimentary rocks over hundreds of millions of years. Right. I hadn't thought about it in this wow. way, yeah. but it's such an important way to think about the situation we're in because we started burning coal and fossil fuels mm-hmm. not that long ago in the scope of human history. Not at all. But, 
you know, we really did start extracting all this material that had taken millions of years, hundreds of millions of years to develop, and then we just burned it. Mm. Um, and so the, you know, the pace that we're burning through these limited resources is really astonishing if you think about it. And yeah. not just that they are limited resources, but that how long it took for them to develop, right? And and what were the processes by which they developed? Yep. And then how what does it mean to return it back to like the atmosphere and the oceans in the rapid methods that we're in and the ways in which we've done that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mm. So yeah, to bring it back a little bit, my homework is to read the uninhabitable earth by David Wallace Wells at some point this year. um, And also to find some ways to connect that learning um, into some action here as well. I love that. I mean, I think we did. Yeah. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about, cause and she meant she has a couple of chapters in her essays that are really about sort of envir- this idea of environmental justice. Yeah. And, um, I mean, the, yeah, we have to do something. Mm-hmm. We have to do something. And I think that that book sounds incredible. Right. And sort of the pieces from that book, but also remake the world as well, really sort of, as you said, highlight the, um, the impending realities, as you said, right. Yeah. Of, the situation that we're in on this planet and we only have one. So we've got to do something. Um, so I love that homework. Very good. All right. Well, you have a lot of homework to do and I'll, yeah. I'll co-sign it with you. Um, but you're also up next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are you bringing to the table in our next episode? Um, I'm going to bring a documentary called class divide, um, which is on HBO. Okay. Um, so this is a quote from the, um, page description. Um, The thought-provoking documentary Class Divide is a timely look at the widening divide between the haves and the have-nots. Young people on both sides of the gap offer unique and honest insights that challenge common perceptions about inequality today. Uh, This documentary explores the effects of hyper-gentrification and rising economic disparity in one of New York City's neighborhoods, uh, or in one New York City neighborhood, which can be seen as a microcosm of the socioeconomic imbalances across the country and the world. Uh, The film bears witness to the profound effects of gentrification and stagnant class mobility on young people who share a West Chelsea community, yet live in very different worlds as they try to navigate this rapidly changing landscape. Wow. so yeah, that's uh, that's what we're gonna talk about next week. I love that. I mean, it sounds like we're gonna have we're gonna continue some of these conversations right around yep. sort of connectedness and yep. uh, conditions, right? Um, I love that. I hadn't heard of this documentary, so I'm looking forward to checking it out. Very good. All right. So with that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what we want you to do, but it's been a minute. So in case you've forgotten, please follow, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with the people in your life, uh, follow us on social media, check us out on YouTube, and sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we've got going on behind the scenes. Yes, and thank you for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. And we'll talk to you next week.